1: And we welcome you to this edition of Tuesday People, the podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Album. I'm the author of the book Tuesdays with Maury, upon which this podcast is based. Lisa Goich, my good friend and producer of the program, is alongside as always. Lisa, how is the week treating you so far?
0: The week is treating me pretty good, I'd say. I mean, it's funny that it's uh, we're recording on a Monday, but it's a holiday, and Monday holidays always make it not seem like it's a Monday. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah that's why it's a holiday. <laughs> like... they, they never wrote rainy days and holidays only get, <laughs> get, me, get me down. It's and so... it's raining.
0: And it's raining. Just to... <laughs> So there you go. Um, yeah, so I'm not quite feeling like it's the week yet. You know, I feel uh-huh. like we're just talking and it's a Saturday or something.
1: Okay. Well, today is going to be an interesting podcast because in researching what I wanted to talk about, I was going through some of the files and came upon something that I did not know still existed. Uh, I thought it had all been done before digital safekeeping, but apparently I have transferred this. And what I came upon was a letter that I wrote to my literary agent in September of 1995, about why I wanted to write this book about this old college professor of mine named Maury Schwartz. Now, I've told the story on the podcast many times about Tuesdays with Maury and how I uh, got involved again with my old professor. And the motivation for the book was always because he had told me that he was in debt for his medical bills And didn't have the money to pay for them, and I thought, well, how can I help him? The only way I know to help him is to write a book. So when I went to my literary agent, because at the time I had written a couple of sports books and I had a literary agent for those, and um, he was was and is still my agent and a good guy, and I said, well, I want to write this book. You know, I need to raise this money. What should I do? And he said, well. He said, we could go around to different publishers, uh, but they're not going to probably want to meet with you unless they have some idea of what it's about, because they're going to think it's a sports book. So why don't you write me a letter? Because I didn't want to write a proposal or anything like that. I was too busy you know, visiting Maury, and I didn't have that kind of in mind. I just had the idea. And he said, why don't you write me a letter? Write me the letter. Me, my literary agent, whose name is David write me the letter, and I'll take the letter and pass it on to the publishers. And we'll use that sort of as, you know, an introduction to the idea. So this is what I wrote. And in this letter, you can hear the early formation of Tuesdays with Maury and who I was at the time, why I wanted to do what I did, and what I thought the book could be. Now, remember, this is before i ever wrote a word of tuesdays with maury before i ever sat down to conceive of it before any publisher was even interested in it it was just a thought and this is the letter that i wrote and i think it will illuminate a lot about tuesdays with maury the book the podcast the journey uh and where i was when this whole thing started i found it interesting i hope you do too so it reads dear david Why do I want to write about Maury? He's dying. I know it. He knows it. Maybe he has three months left before the disease takes him over completely, the way it's already taken over his feet, his legs, his hips. Once it hits the lungs, he stops talking, and soon he dies. He knows it. I know it. People die all the time, and yet there is something about him there in his chair, in his small office on that quiet street in Newton, Massachusetts looking at me as if he's been waiting for decades, as if he always knew I'd come back. We were teacher and student at Brandeis University. He had been a sociology professor there for decades, including the turbulent 60s, when Brandeis was a political hotbed. The demonstrations, anti-war marches, Angela Davis, Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman. One time, Maury was the go-between for the school and some Black Panther types. They had taken over a building Maury, who never judged people, was standing by the building watching when he was asked by one of his students if he wanted to get inside. Maury said, sure. He crawled in through the window. And nobody said anything. He's a small white-haired guy with crooked teeth and Santa Claus eyes. What were they going to do, shoot him? Anyhow, everyone loved Maury, so even the Panther type said, this guy's okay. They ended up giving him their list of demands. He crawled out the window and took them to the university president, without judgment, without force. Maury was always the teacher who saw both sides. By the time I got to Brandeis in the mid-70s, the ashes had cooled, and it was just another place for smart kids to train to be doctors, lawyers, and businessmen. Maybe when he met me, Maury saw a little of the 60s spirit revisited. I was pretty rambunctious in college. I wanted to be a musician. I went against type. He took to me. I took to him. I used to call him Coach, and he liked that. He reminded me of a favorite uncle, only gentler, more astute. He listened to everything. He challenged me to think and to feel. He said not to worry about making money like so many of my fellow students, to become instead, quote, a whole person. He said I shouldn't be afraid to do things like express myself or cry. Being 19 years old, naturally, my immediate reaction was, this guy is an easy A. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny oh
1: i'm so proud of myself <laughs> don't you hate when you read things from when you were younger i know and go, oh god why was i thinking but it just uh, I mean, makes
0: you cringe
1: <laughs> yeah but i'm i'm reading it to you honestly this is what i wrote when i was 36 years old or whatever i took all the classes he offered i also wrote my honors thesis under him It was about how in America, sports had replaced religion as the opium of the masses. At the time, I had no idea I would eventually become a sports writer and a sports broadcaster, get rich from it, even become nationally known for it. The thesis was just something I did in college, mostly because Maury encouraged me. I saw him three times a week, and Tuesdays were our long day together. We would sit in his office or under a tree or in the cafeteria over lunch. He told me about growing up poor in the Bronx. About working with patients who were mentally ill, about the books he'd written, about how he loved to dance, even by himself, how he wasn't embarrassed to take the floor, close his eyes, and spin around. I know he sounds weird, but you have to meet him. He's this little old guy with a genuine twinkle in his eye. He was also the biggest slob. He would talk while he ate, telling me stories, gesturing wildly, and the food would spew out of his mouth. I'm not kidding. He went on and on about life find yourself, develop your heart. And all the while, these little pieces of egg salad were stuck in his teeth. The whole time I knew him, I had two overwhelming urges, to hug him and to give him a napkin. That line, by the way, which I wrote in the letter, ended up in the book.
0: Yeah, that's in the book, right?
1: Yeah, that's in the book, but this is where I first came up. It was in the letter. I finished the thesis, David. I graduated with the highest honors in my department. It was 1979. That was the last piece of sociology I wrote. It was also the last time I saw Maury. Until this year. Maury is dying of a disease named for, of all things, a baseball player. Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS. It's the worst. A slow killer with no known cure. I found out through network TV. Maury was being interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Koppel was fascinated by Mori's approach to dying, which was not to shrivel up and feel sorry for himself, but to continue teaching, as he always had taught. Only now he would teach about dying. At one point in the interview, Mori started to cry. He said to Koppel, I hope this doesn't embarrass you. Most people don't like to see men cry. I think it's okay for men to cry. Koppel swallowed and nodded. Same old mori still going right for the heart. When I finally got his number, I called and a nurse answered. She passed on the name. There was a long pause, and then I heard that high pitched voice say, Hello? I said, Hello, Professor Schwartz. My name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. How come you didn't call me Coach? He said. (laughs) Since then, I've spent a lot of time with Maury. One visit led to another, and soon we resumed our Tuesday ritual, only now it's not on a college campus where life just begins, but in a small sunny room where his life will end. I plan to continue to see Maury, sitting by him in his study until his end comes. I have already witnessed the decay of his legs, his torso, his arms. When he began, he could get around and feed himself, but now he needs help lifting the fork to his mouth. When he wants to move his foot, I have to move it. When a book falls from his hands, I have to pick it up. He coughs and his voice gets weaker each day, yet his mind is as sharp as ever. And as he overcomes one loss after another and still manages to smile, I find myself drawn to him even more, his strength and his wisdom, which seem to grow exponentially as he gets closer to the end. I'm not alone, David. Since the Nightline program, Maury has become kind of a cult celebrity. People write him from around the world. They call, they make pilgrimages just to spend 30 minutes in his presence. It's as if he's this voice from the deep, dark basement that we will all descend into eventually. And he's telling people as he goes down the steps that it's not so bad, that if you live a certain way, you can die a certain way too. It's funny, as I look on that, Lisa, I remember that... I later in the book said that he was like somebody who was going on a journey, uh, and he were and and he was telling us what to pack.
0: Oh know, right, he was <laughs> going
1: a journey to heaven. But here, when I first wrote it, I wrote that he's going down to the basement oh.
0: <laughs> no, a journey is much more yeah, yeah um, i
1: think i got a little more literary as it yeah a on. journey
0: is much more poetic i think mm. you switched it to a better yeah. a yeah. better word there
1: yeah he's going to the basement yeah <laughs> anybody can go to no, the basement
0: but nobody even likes basements <laughs> right yeah
1: interesting how i uh, it's right i have not read this in Well, oh, what is it uh, the 30, years.
0: That's funny, no. 20, <laughs> twenty
1: twenty, twenty six years, twenty six years, twenty seven years. Wow.
0: We'll be back with more Tuesday people right after this.
1: Uh, Okay, continuing. Most of the people who come to visit are strangers. He gives them a little time, but when I come to visit, he stops everything. He clears his decks. He sits in this recliner chair in his office with a little blanket over his knees, and he smiles and says, today I give to you. And we talk. Not about sickness. Oh, there's some of that. He struggles with how he wants to die, the final moment. Should he rage, go out screaming? Or should he hold the hands of those he loves? He has decided the best way to die, by the way, is in a serene, calm state, which, not coincidentally, is how he now feels it's best to live. But mostly we don't talk about morbid things. We talk about life, American life, the culture that emphasizes youth and money and speed and success. And one by one, he takes those false icons apart, smiling as he explains how beauty and a trim body become such silly infatuations when you only have precious time with those you love. Love, human contact, community, friendship. These are the treasures he wants closest to him now. We sit, we eat soup and cake, and we compare our generations as we did back in college. Now as then, I learn far more than he does. We have found each other again, David, after 16 years, For me, it's been a much-needed reunion. As you know, I have a million things going. I make a lot of money from TV, radio, newspapers, books, even a movie screenplay that we sold. I just got married. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Ah. I just got married, and we're thinking about kids. In so many ways, my life, for someone in his mid-30s, must seem marvelously lucky, smack in the middle of this big, happy road. And yet now and then, there's a sense of emptiness, of purpose. I work a lot. I'm not always sure what for. I think a lot of successful people from my generation are hitting this wall right about now. They've burned themselves to a crisp and the checkbook isn't the source of joy that it used to be. To make things worse, for me, there's been this terrible newspaper strike in Detroit, and suddenly being out of work for the first time in years and being caught in the middle of a labor war, both sides screaming about money and contracts and fair treatment, I find myself drawn more and more to the simplicity of my old professor. Here is Maury, looking death in the eye every morning, and he gets up, and the ghost is a little closer, yet he maintains this optimistic, even cheery outlook. I'm overwhelmed by his courage. What he has to say, what could be the underpinning of a book, is the wisdom of his reflections to deal with death. It's not est or pyramid power or any of that crap. Mori is a little religious, a little new age. He was born Jewish, but he believes in Buddhism as well, so he laughingly calls himself a boo <laughs> <laughs> Forgot that. But mostly, he's just plain old common sense. His reflections are applicable to a man dying of a fatal illness, but they are also a perfect blueprint for how to live, how to conduct yourself in business, how to perform in social relationships. A true-life edition of The Celestine Prophecy and its Secrets for Living only these are real, not fiction. I listen to them and I see the wisdom and philosophy of an entire self-help section. For example, amongst his reflections, quote, a determination to be composed, finding courage, humor, and inner peace with your circumstances. Quote, acceptance of what you can and can't do and to be able to move clearly between each. Quote, anticipating the next crisis. Quote, living in the present. Quote, seeing and accepting yourself as part of nature. Quote, finding time in the day to fully face your dread, your horror, your anxiety. Quote, allowing your heart to be open to your own suffering, but also to the suffering of others. Quote, learning to forgive yourself. Quote, finding what is divine or holy to you. Quote, finding joy in unlikely places. Sure, we've heard some of these ideas before, David. What makes them different from Maury is that he sees them with the clarity of his final light. There are so many books about what is important in life written by people in their 30s and 40s who are still changing their minds about what is important. And there are so many quote unquote hot books about death and dying, but most of them talk about preparing for death or life on the other side written by doctors, psychics, or faith healers. Here is a simple guy who's right here on the final bridge. And in a small, quiet voice, he says, I know what matters. I can see it clearly now. Do you want to know the secret? Did I tell you about the time, David, that Maury first met Ted Koppel? ABC comes to his house a day early to film him for Nightline. All his friends are over, all dialed up, hoping to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. Maury refuses makeup, refuses new clothes, refuses any false trappings. This is how I am, he tells the camera people. Folding his hands across his chest and smiling that crooked smile. A natural beauty, <laughs> he says. <laughs> of course, they fall in love with him. When Koppel arrives, he's ushered into Maury's study and the door closes. Outside, one of the producers whispers to another, I'm worried about what Ted is going to do to Maury. The second guy grins, I'm worried about what Maury's going to do to Ted. Inside, Koppel starts with the small talk. Maury interrupts him. Listen, Ted. Before you can ask me any personal things on television, I need to know something about you. Fair enough, Koppel says. Tell me something from your heart, Maury says. Koppel's taken aback. From his heart? He stumbles, finally talks about his children. Maury looks in his eyes, judges his sincerity. Now tell me something about your spiritual life, Maury says. Koppel's offended. Listen, he says, I don't tell such personal things about myself to strangers. I have to know them for a while. Maury smiles. Ted, I don't have a lot of time. copple <laughs> relents. He talks about religion. Maury asks a few more questions. Finally, copple interrupts. Excuse me, Maury, but have you ever seen my show? Maury thinks. Twice, he says. Twice, copple says? Don't feel bad, Maury says. I've only seen Oprah once. <laughs> well, the two times you saw it, what did you think, Koppel asks. Of your show? Yes. Maury shrugs. I thought you were a narcissist.
0: Ah. Uh-huh.
1: Koppel stares, then cracks up. Their show was a hit, and they did another, and they have a third one planned. Koppel calls Maury, periodically now and then, just to talk. It's that type of honest effect that I want to capture. Maury is not egotistical. He doesn't wish to preach. He says he is a teacher. He's been one for 40 years. And it makes him feel true to himself to go out teaching. That's all. I got to thinking about a unique project between the two of us, one that would have a double focus. His enlightenment at the end of life and how it enlightens those of us like me, still here in the middle. Maury's biggest point is that, quote, in learning how to die. You learn how to live. That's applicable to everyone, David, don't you think? So I have this wow. idea. Wow. Yeah. I, who, That's <laughs> yeah.
0: totally, it's to, like I'm so sold, sold. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you were quite different from the publishers because this didn't convince hardly any of them. But uh, so here's the final page. So I have this idea, David, for a book not one of those self-help books or a gobbledygook guide to living, a story, a true story about an older guy and a younger guy who meet once on the road, touch each other's lives, and then meet again years later when the older guy is about to die. The younger guy has become a page out of the American Success Handbook. He's doing way better than the older guy ever did, but there's still something missing. And the older guy on his deathbed is still as kind and simple and clear-minded as he always was they're drawn together again, and the old guy offers the final lessons, which turn out to be perhaps the thing the younger guy was missing all along. Structure? I know you're going to ask about that. Maybe we start the book when I show up at his house in Boston after all these years, and we go along Tuesday after Tuesday. That's our train. As we lose Maury bit by bit to the disease, we get him back bit by bit in spirituality and life lessons. In between, we flash back Tell some of the stories of his Depression-era life and how it exemplifies his generation, and some of my fast-track life stories and how it's typical to my own generation. We make the readers find a piece of themselves in us. Every son who had a father, every student who had a teacher, every kid who had a coach, a mentor, a source of wisdom. And once they find themselves, they will go the last mile to the end, to Maury's death, because the payoff of the whole thing is the best last lesson one generation could teach the next. How to die with peace about how you've lived. The punch of the book, David, is nothing less than the meaning of life, I guess, as grand as that sounds. The beauty is in the simplicity of the framework. An old man and a young man passing the torch, talking, waiting, with different fears, for their final moment together on earth. Something like that? I'm going to be with my old professor once a week until the end. I've already watched him decay, watched him lose his legs, his knees, now his fingertips. It's amazing how he deals with it all, fighting it, crying over it, finally accepting it, growing stronger from it. When the final days come, I hope to be with him, along with his family. That part will not be easy, and I'd be lying if I said I knew how I would take it, or how much I could even watch. You know me as a journalist who's always been able to distance himself from painful subjects. I guess I will rely on that. I will also not be ashamed to cry. All I know, David, is that this is a special person who will not be with us long. And by twist of fate, he's a person I knew well years ago, and there must be a reason that we've been reunited. I told Maury I would probably be visiting him every Tuesday, and he smiled and said, That's a perfect title for a book. Tuesdays with Maury. He wants to do it, sees it as very different than a more academic book he's putting together himself, and he's kind of flattered that I want to tell his story. He said it would be our, quote, last thesis together. (laughs) David, I can't explain the compulsion I have. I'm not a New Age type, as you know, and I've seen and written about many tragedies, even deaths before. This is not new, it's just personal. We all fear the end of our lives. We fear dying too soon. We fear dying without having done what truly matters. Maury is going where we all fear to go, and he's calling instructions back from the cave. And David, those instructions hold up for people who are sick and people who are old and people who are young and healthy and doing well and who still need to get a grip on what life is supposed to be about. This is important. It needs to be written. And it needs to be read. Help me. That's signed Mitch. And that is the letter. Wow. That began the idea of the book Tuesdays with Maureen.
0: That's crazy. First of all, it's exactly your book, pretty much, except for the basement part. <laughs> but, um, it's exactly the book. The title, too. Like Nobody even yeah. bothered changing your title. They kept the title, uh, the format of the book. I'm looking at this like if you were pitching this to me, like they literally just kept it. And I know you said, so it wasn't that easy to sell it, which is no, hard to believe. It,
1: it didn't, <laughs> it didn't excite anybody. I mean,
0: that's crazy. I thought,
1: I thought in reading it, that's not a bad letter. Uh, yeah, it's a great letter. <laughs> no, I mean, he sent it around a bunch of people, a bunch of publishers, and um, a lot of them weren't interested at all uh some were interested enough to hear me talk about it but really only like a couple uh and one of those that i went to stopped me i think they just did it as a favor to david but when i went they stopped me and they said stop we're we're not you know we don't want to mislead we're not interested in it and uh, i don't even think he said to me i don't even think you know what a memoir is Come back in maybe twenty years, and you'll know what a memoir is. I was thirty six yeah. or thirty seven. He told me to come back in twenty years.
0: He's kicking himself now. Yeah. Well. As he's as he's fishing through his wallet and his single dollar bills that are <laughs> <Okay>. in there. <laughs> I don't know. I know Maury wouldn't like Maury wouldn't like that sort of attitude. I realize that, but I do.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you do. But well, the point is that it didn't excite that many people, but it got me into one publisher, obviously, in the end, who agreed to do it. And uh, it, it is interesting to just see, without ever having written a word, outlined anything or anything, just, just writing a letter, how it ended up so much, you're right, it ended up being so much like what that letter, this was September, Mori,
0: Mori lived yeah. another
1: two more months beyond that. Yeah. And then I didn't start writing anything until January. So this is, this is a good four or five months before I ever put my fingers on a typewriter to start writing the book. And yet, I guess I already kind of knew what it was going to be. And, um, you know, maybe that's why it came out the way it did.
0: Well, I love too, that you used a, um, that it was a letter format and not a formal proposal. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, does, has that ever been done before? I did not even know if that was a thing. Like, that's um, amazing that you sold this book on a letter and, uh, look at it, look at it now.
1: Well, I should, I, I think it would be more appropriate and accurate to say my agent. sold. yeah, your agent on sold the,
0: the book. On the, I didn't on do anything. Right.
1: <laughs> and, uh, I didn't obviously do that great a job because there weren't that many people interested in it, but, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if a letter is a common way of doing it, but I knew that I didn't want to make a proposal. formal. It felt uh, so you know, formal and inappropriate. You know,
0: it would have never conveyed the same message. I can tell you that because the way you wrote it was from your heart. And I think that a proposal would have just made it cold and formatted yeah, and you're and, right. And you would have never sold it. You know, I think, bless your, 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 uh, agent, yeah, David for, for, that out. for thinking of that right away. And, and look,
1: And in many ways, uh, even the tone of the letter is kind of the tone of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of the same voice. Um,
0: It's totally the same voice. Yeah,
1: Yeah. (laughs) which I guess shows I only have one voice, I
0: guess. No, but I love it. That's really cool to have in the archives. Don't lose
1: it. Yeah, I've never read that uh, out loud, certainly, or to anybody. So there you have it as part of our podcast. And hopefully it gives you a little insight on on the book Tuesdays with Maury and on how even, to, uh, even in the early stages of the experience or the mid stages, I should say, cause I'd been going for a while. Um, I already could tell that there was something special and that was before, you know, Maury was really at the end end and when things really mm. got so poignant and, and saw it. And, and so if there's anything to be learned from this, I guess it's, you know, if you have people like that in your life right now, uh, don't wait for, you know, someone else to validate what you're doing. Because what I liked reading the most about this, and I'm glad, you know, I saw it, is the paragraph that says, I'm going to be with my old professor once a week until the end. I didn't say, if we get this book proposal. Yeah, (laughs) right. uh, Or anything like that. This wasn't about doing a book. This was just about sharing this experience. I was going anyhow. I was going to be there at the end. and, And, you know, whether it was a book happening or not, whether I was going to be able to help him pay his bills or not, it didn't change the experience. And I think if you have something like that going on, don't wait for somebody to validate it from the outside. Yeah. It is, it's important as it is.
0: Wow. Well, so good job, Mitch. Good job.
1: So thank you for listening to that. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And um, next week we'll get back to a more traditional sounding Oh, I love this
0: one. More letters, yeah, more letters. That,
1: well, I don't have that many. I think <laughs> that was it. I'll see what I could dig up. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. You can find more about our podcast at wetuesdaypeople.com on the web. Until we see you next week, on behalf of Lisa Goitsch, our producer, this is Mitch Album saying, see you next Tuesday.
0: Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because after all, we're Tuesday people.